So good to be together this morning. Every now and again, I uh, have a conversation with a new person who's visiting the church that goes something like this. I enjoy you guys, but I, I can't quite place you because you kind of sing and pray like Pentecostals and then you get up and preach like Presbyterians. What is it? I can't, can't quite place you guys. And I'm not sure about those labels. I'm not certainly saying that Pentecostals don't preach well. I'm certainly not saying Presbyterians don't sing well. But we are a little bit of a junkyard dog. We're a hybrid, yeah. Uh, not because we're trying to be unique, but just because we see in Scripture that the kind of church that Jesus has in mind breaks categories, caricatures, and when the church is together, Jesus does want us to sing with passion and pray with great faith, trusting that the power of God can break in now. When we come to the Word, He wants us to come with great reverence, not just with faith, but reverence saying, God, we don't want to superimpose our pet theologies on you. We want to hear. We want to allow what you're saying in your word to sink deeply within us. And we have come to the end of our Luke series. One of the ways we express reverence for the word of God here is that we generally preach through books of the Bible slowly. We've been a year in the book of Luke. Absolutely loved it. Hope you have too. We come to the last chapter. Before we start, the book of Daniel. You ready for that? Next week, the book of Daniel. Can't wait for that. There's our graphic. We're going to ask, beautiful graphic, isn't it? What it is to be brave, but not brave and mustering up courage, brave by faith. Can't wait for that. But we are in Luke 24, going to look at the resurrection. And I think the resurrection is really undertaught. I love Easter Sunday. It's like the Super Bowl Sunday of the church. We baptize and have pancake breakfast and have huge crowds and it's, it's an amazing thing. But when I think about it, we, we've got a much better grasp of the cross than we do the, the resurrection, partly because we don't preach enough about the resurrection. And I want us to think this morning about what it means that Jesus was raised with flesh and bones, that He was literally, physically raised. Why is that good news for us? Why is that perhaps even troubling news for us? What does it mean that Jesus was raised physically? Verse 36 of Luke 24, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Spirit does not have flesh and bones. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet 
And while they still disbelieved for joy, I love that phrase, don't you? They disbelieved for joy. They were conflicted. I want to believe, but uh, I don't believe, but I'm so excited, but I'm doubtful. And they were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord, amen? amen. So thankful for it. I think this passage is written for the average Orange County person, just for us. Because I find here in Orange County, maybe LA County, Inland Empire, moving down to San Diego County, etc. most people really like the idea of the resurrection. They find it comforting, but they don't necessarily find it troubling. They don't find it startling, as it says here in verse 37. They were startled. And Jesus says, why are you troubled? And, and look, make no mistake, that the resurrection should be comforting. Jesus says here, in verse 36, peace to you. The resurrection should bring us great comfort and great peace that Christ is risen from the dead. He's conquered sin, conquered Satan, conquered death. And I think most of us are, are comforted by the Easter story. It, it, it tells us that there is hope after darkness, that there's peace after chaos, tells us that the good guys do sometimes win, can't keep a good man down, all that good stuff. It, it even tells us that there is life after death. It's, it's comforting, it, it's, it's peace filled, it should be. But, but we here in this area, we tend to over-spiritualize the resurrection. We tend to make it something pretty mythical and, and mystical. And because of that, we, we don't feel startled by it. We don't actually often feel troubled by it. We just want to be comforted by it. Like it's our Linus's security blanket. Like it's our eternal fire insurance. And it is that, but it's so much more. It's so much more. And if we are comforted by it without being startled by it, it's because we either haven't completely believed in it or it's because we haven't really thought through it. 
what does this really mean that Jesus was raised and flesh and bones is a little bit like that two years ago, that double rainbow guy on YouTube. You know that, that thing, you know? That is a, is a classic little funny YouTube. Any of you seen the double rainbow? Yeah, yeah. It's this guy, I think he was kind of stoned probably, but like he, he sees this double rainbow and he just, he, he takes you know, video of it and he's just like, oh, double rainbow. And he just starts crying, double rainbow. Then he says, I don't know what it means, but it's so amazing, double rainbow. <laughs> kind of went viral, you know? And, and I just wonder whether the resurrection is a little bit like the double rainbow for people here in Orange County. I don't know what it means, but it's amazing. And you know, it's, it's as though Luke, Dr. Luke is anticipating this because he opens in verse 35. As they were there talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus himself. That, that word himself is the Greek word autos, which is an intensive pronoun. I, I'm, I'm a literature teacher, so I'm, I geek out on this stuff. It's awesome. It's, it's like Jesus himself. It's like Jesus, Jesus. Like it's me, me. You know, someone knocks at the door, you haven't seen them for a while. Is it you? Yeah, it's, it's me, me, you know? Jesus himself stood there. And then to reaffirm that, he even says, it is I, myself. He uses that same word, autos. It's I, myself, it's, it's me, it's me, me. And, and he's insisting that I'm not a ghost. Touch me, he says. See my hands, my feet. It is I myself. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. He's saying that. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. I'm not a ghost. It's me, me. And then he does the unthinkable. He, he asks for something to eat. And they give him a piece of broiled fish. Now we'll get to the broiled idea later. I think it's fascinating. But they give him a piece of broiled fish and it says, and he eats it in front of them. And I want, I want to ask you, do you think Jesus was hungry? Let's go a little bit Sherlock Holmes here, right? Let's go a little bit investigative because Luke actually welcomes us to do that. Remember Luke, this is Luke the doctor. Luke is, is the thinking man who investigates Jesus claims to be the, the, the Son of God. And, and remember Luke's opening words in his gospel. Now stay with me. You're gonna to have to keep your thinking cap on before it hits your heart. But opening words, Luke 1. What does Luke 1 say? Opening words. Just shout it out, paraphrase. Quick, quick, quick. Right. He's like, look, my dear Theophilus, who was the benefactor, he paid for the writing of this thing. Many have written a narrative of what we've seen and heard, a story, but I thought it right, my dear Theophilus, to write an orderly account. That's what Luke is getting at. He's like, look, John can do the narrative. Awesome, John, I mean, John, he's the poet, right? But I'm the historian, Luke says, and, and I'm gonna put an orderly account. Now in the orderly account, we've got Jesus asking for a piece of broiled fish. And I ask, was he hungry? What we find if we go to the verses before, it's the passage on the road to Emmaus that I actually preached on Easter Sunday. That's why I'm not preaching it today. And it says, Jesus pretends he's a gardener. 
these two disciples invite him in and he breaks bread with them. He has a meal with them and he opens their eyes to the Scriptures and they say, did not our hearts burn within us? Now verse 36, as they were talking about these things, what things? It's the two disciples from Emmaus who went to the 11 and said, listen, He appeared to us, we ate with Him. And it says, that very hour they went. In other words, Jesus has just had a meal with those disciples an hour ago and He's asking for fish. Why? And unless he's got a metabolism like my 15-year-old son who gets hungry an hour after dinner, he's not asking because he's hungry. He's asking because he's proving. Ghosts cannot eat fish. Ghost does not have an appetite. Spirit does not have flesh and bones. And I love, (laughs) I love how Luke just gives this unnecessary detail. It was broiled. <laughs> broiled. You know what broiled is? It's, it's roasted, right? It's roasted. Uh, it, it's probably over coals. Broiled. And I wonder like, why broiled? Why did he say broiled? Like, like isn't Luke the doctor trying to help us with kind of healthy eating? You know, don't do the fried stuff, guys, you know? Because like, let's, fish it, let's face it, fish, Fish does taste better fried. I mean, let's face it, it just does. I mean, it really does. I mean, I'm not a big fish guy, but fried fish, fantastic. You come with me to the old ship, we'll have fish and chips and watch some soccer, football, soccer, whatever. And and why is it? Well, he says broil just because that actually happened. If Luke was trying to build this fantastical narrative, he wouldn't have said broiled fish and he had some. You know, imagine resurrected Jesus like spitting out the bones and having a little dry piece of roasted fish, you know? If he was trying to create a conspiracy, it would be like, and Jesus just snapped his fingers and then there was a seafood platter just out there, you know, something fantastical. No, a piece of broiled fish, why? Because it actually just happened. It's a completely unnecessary part of the narrative, but he's just saying, because it happened, guys, it happened. It's so patently believable, isn't it? So you, you, I mean, you may ask me, but why are you harping on about this flesh and bones resurrection? Well, well, firstly, because Jesus is saying, you guys are gonna be witnesses of this. And we find in the book of Acts, the same writer Luke says, Jesus appeared over 40 days to over 500 disciples, showing them that He was physically, literally alive. If you're gonna be a witness, you've gotta be a witness to something that actually happened, right? You can't be a witness to an idea. You can't be a, a witness to a feeling. You can't even be a witness to a ghost. People will not believe you, no. But if you put your hands in his side and if you watched him eat a piece of broiled fish, you can say, he was there, I touched him, I saw him. That's actually what John says in in 1 John 1, what our hands have touched, what our eyes have behold. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. These people were so convinced over the 40 days and 40 nights, they were willing to give their lives for this. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, I read it last week says, what I proclaim to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. Remember Holy Saturday, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day. Of first importance, in other words, He says, this literal resurrection, bodily flesh and bones resurrection is make or break to your faith. It's of first importance. Some of us have elevated other things as first importance. And I wanna ask you, can you de-escalate them and make the resurrection first importance, the cross first importance? That's make or break. And he carries on. I mean, he says, because if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are dead in your sins. He's like, ain't no sentimental, sentimentality in Paul. He's just like, look guys, if it didn't happen, you can do what you want. You are to be more pitied than anyone on the face of the earth. Your faith is futile. But if it did, he said, you will all be raised. Have faith, it's make or break the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So what does it mean? What does it mean to us that Jesus was literally raised with flesh and blood? What does it mean? Firstly, it means that embodied mission matters. It's fascinating that at the end of all the four gospels, the resurrected Christ gives a commission to his disciples. What's the most famous one? Shout it out. Great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to, to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. We were supposed to baptize today. We're not. We're going to baptize another three people next week. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's what it's about. Hallelujah. And here we see again and kind of a, a riff on that commission. Verse 45, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So, so Jesus predicting that He would die and rise again, literally, and by actually proving that He did, now has a fresh authority. All authority has been given to me. I mean, over death, over sin, over Satan, and over you disciples. I mean, beloved, have we taken to heart that if Jesus literally rose from the dead, He is literally King. He literally has authority. And therefore His commission to go and make disciples, we've got to take real seriously. And there's peace that comes in that. Isn't there incredible peace that actually Jesus rising from the dead confirms that His words on the cross are actually true. We can take it to the bank. His final words, it is finished. Your debt is paid in full. I mean, those are nice words. We'd like to believe them until Jesus actually rises from the dead. And we go, oh, that is actually true. You actually do have authority to forgive sins. Yes, Lord. The resurrection is the receipt that Jesus holds in His hands that He can forgive sins. You know, you go to Costco or whatever your favourite big store is and there's that big security guard, grumpy looking saying, where's your receipt? And you have to show, here's my receipt. And he's like, okay, you can go. I don't know why they're always like, do it as though like they're doing you a favor. I paid for this, man. Why are you grumpy? 
And I wanna tell you the resurrection is our receipt that our debt has been paid in full. We should wave it in the face of the devil and say, you let me go. He literally rise from the dead. Therefore, I can take his words to the bank. It's good news for you and I. Old hymn, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made, who paid, whatever, who made an end to all my sin. Get it right, Alan. Sorry, Sam. Who made an end to all my sin. Because he literally rose from the dead. I have peace. I have peace with God. I'm justified. Satan can shut up. When Satan accuses you, you just say, yes, you're right. But I look there. He justifies me, not me. It's beautiful news. It's also troubling news should be because if Jesus really has authority then actually he has authority to cut across our preferences cut across our comfort we've got to stop negotiating with this great commission as Hudson Taylor that great missionary to China once said the great commission is not an option to be considered it is a command to be obeyed if Jesus really has all authority. He has authority not just to forgive sins and over death, but over you and I. And and Jesus here, he commissions his disciples as a flesh and blood Messiah. He commissions his disciples to be flesh and blood missionaries. Jesus, here, beginning from Jerusalem to all nations, Jesus does not expect all nations to come to Jerusalem. He expects his disciples to go and be flesh and bones there. Why? Because that's what I did. The word became flesh and dwelt among you in incarnation. And then in the resurrection, I dwelt among you too. So you're gonna dwell among them. I am. I mean, it's an amazing thing that, that Jesus didn't flit around to all nations like a ghost saying, I'm here, I'm risen, look, believe. He could have to every nation, every city, every village. He could have, but instead he says, you go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna convince you that I'm literally alive and then you're gonna go as witnesses in the power of the Spirit. And that is a beautiful thing. But boy, it's a disruptive thing. These disciples, because they were so convinced, it disrupted their relationships, their businesses, their comfort. Many lost their lives. I just want to ask us, does the resurrected Christ have authority to disrupt your life? To disrupt your bank balance? To disrupt your friendships? Does the resurrected Christ have authority to send you to live in another nation? I tell you, I get tearful whenever I say this because someone says yes, and that means hard goodbyes. We send our best friends time and time again. How many best friends can you have? I don't know, but deep, close friends to cities and nations. Why? Because we believe this stuff. And for many, the commission is to stay and make disciples. 
in our own, own zip code, but does He have authority to send you across the street, send you across the boardroom, send you across the playground to that awkward person that no one wants to speak to? If He's literally alive, He does. Beloved, it's, it's why the embodied church is so important too. Not just embodied mission, but the embodied church. It would be so convenient just to send this incredible message out on YouTube and out on TV and out on podcasts and that's all good. But virtual witnessing is not the same as flesh and bones witnessing, nor is virtual church. And we are committed to serving people that can't be here, but beloved, if the resurrection is true, then actually we put a high value on eye contact and touch and praying together in unison and singing together in unison and laying on of hands. And if we have to wear a mask, we will. But beloved, the resurrection needs to inform the way we are as the church now. We say we're willing to be inconvenienced because Jesus, you were. And you sent us as flesh and bones witnesses. One of the quotes I just love in this, in this moment where the tendency is to huddle in safety and do mission and church in virtual ways is C.S. Lewis. After the Second World War, he writes about living as Christians who believe in the resurrection in an atomic age. And he talks about, I mean, we think these are unprecedented times. They are precedented, friends. The church has these moments of crisis where there's, there's just such a temptation to huddle together and be virtual in our, in, our, in our mission and in our being and our gathering. And that's what was happening in the 50s, in the atomic age, because they were just hiding in bomb shelters. They were waiting for an atomic bomb to go off. And he says this, he says, how are we to live in an atomic age? Maybe change that out. How are we to live in a viral age? This is the first point to be made and the first action to, to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all gonna be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts or a cup of tea. Just saying that in case I get emails tomorrow morning. I'm not saying you must have a pint, Biola students. It's C.S. Lewis here, right? Not me. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. It's a great quote, isn't it? And we are doing our best to try and be wise about this. We're not being cavalier, but boy, the resurrection informs our mission and our gathering to be embodied. Secondly, if Jesus is resurrected in flesh and bones, the embodied world matters. The embodied world, not just church and mission, the whole embodied world matters. Broiled fish was not the only time that Jesus showed that he was in the material world, not flitting around like a ghost. There's that famous Thomas scene, put your hands in my side. 
There's a scene in John's gospel where he cooks fish breakfast. Broiled fish was so good. He was like, let me share it with you guys. I just have to believe that he made it probably a little bit more tasty. I'm not sure, but conjecture. And then what about that moment where he pretends to be a gardener and goes in for dinner with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? N.T. Wright, Wright is great on the resurrection. I, I don't love him on everything. I don't love him on, the ju on justification, but on the resurrection, he is outstanding. And, and he talks about Jesus' physical resurrection actually being the beginning of a new kingdom. That is not to snatch people away from the world, but actually to fill every part of earth with heaven. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The resurrection doesn't snatch us away from earth to heaven. It actually calls us to say, no, Lord, every part of your world matters. Now fill it with your kingdom. Fill it with your kingdom. That's what the Lord's prayer is all about. Beloved, can we see that Revelations 21 says, John says, I looked and I saw coming out of heaven a new heaven and a new? The resurrection is a first taste, not just of heaven, but of a new earth. That Jesus said, I'm gonna glorify everything when I return. And therefore everything matters. It's gonna be great that we go to heaven. I don't have time to explain where the two connect, but actually there's a new earth. And so N.T. Wright says this, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbour as yourself. Can you see the connection to C.S. Lewis here? Normal things matter. They will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present a little bit more bearable until the day we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. I know that's a long quote, but can we just allow that to sink into our workplace, into our relationships, into our relationship with our city and, and injustice? That Christ was raised spiritually means, man, evangelism is mightily important. We, we, we're going after people's eternal souls. But that Christ was raised bodily means mercy and justice important. That Jesus actually cares about people and how they live and their relationships and what they earn. And that also matters, amen? Shapes not just our mission, it should shape our rule of life. Hear me on this. It should shape our rule of life. It should shape our priorities. It should shape our bucket lists. Hear me, think about this for a moment. If there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth, shout out to me, where's your destination bucket list? Don't feel guilty about it at all. I've got a couple too, all right? Shout it out. Sorry? Macau, yeah? Switzerland. 
Scotland. No, it's not, not worth it, Scotland. No. <laughs> joking, I'm joking. It's beautiful. Isle of Scar, yeah? Any others? Oh, yeah. yeah that's good. <laughs> now we're talking. Do we understand, hear me, do we understand that your destination bucket list, and I've got some too, in the new heaven and the new earth will make what that place is now as beautiful as it might be. It will make it look like downtown Disney compared to the real park. It will. I heard of a couple who recently got married and they were going to Costa Rica for honeymoon. Because of COVID, it got canceled. And their pastor asked them, how do you feel? And the guy literally said, it's okay. We'll go there in the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that beautiful? I was just like, oh, bucket lists, bucket lists. In Costa Rica, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no mosquitoes, no sharks. The eternal curling wave. You'll be able to eat like whatever they eat there and not get fat. It'll be amazing. You'll be able to sunburn, like tan and not get sunburned, not get... Not broiled fish, they'll, whatever. <laughs> I'm being a little playful, but I want us to apply our faith to our imagination. I wonder if taking the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we could have a Jesus bucket list of things that we will not be able to do in the new heavens and the new earth. Because boy, I read my Bible and I say, I'll be able to enjoy amazing things in the new heaven and the new earth, but there's some things I won't be able to do. You know what I won't be able to do? I won't be able to share the gospel. What else won't I be able to do? Sorry? Talk, talking tongues, I'm not sure. Maybe, not sure. I won't, I won't be able to heal the sick, comfort the broken, feed the hungry, because... In the new heavens and the earth, he'll wipe every tear away. Those things I won't be able to do. So how about we develop a new bucket list? I'm serious. In your life groups, in your engagement groups, sit about it. What will I not be able to do? And let me have a bucket list. And Lord Jesus, you know my current bucket list. Please take care of that too. But if I don't get there, I'll get there in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh boy. The embodied world matters. I tease with my kids with their sort of YOLO. You, know, you only live once. No, we all live twice. They say, Dad, that's such a dad joke. Walt, you know, we all live twice. Walt. But there's truth in that if we will receive it, there's truth in that. Let me just get careful here and say, if Jesus physically was raised from the dead with scars, can you just think about that for a moment, with scars? Isn't it amazing that Jesus kept his bodily imperfections? I mean, he had a glorified body. He could kind of stand among them suddenly without sailing through it, knocking on the door. I mean, it was glorified. It was glorious, but he kept his scars. What does that mean in our body perfectionism? 
a desire to be absolutely perfect. Can it speak to that? What does it mean to a body comparison? For some, and I want to walk so carefully here, even a body hatred. That if Jesus kept his body, the body is sacred, even with imperfections. And I want to I ask us to receive that aspect of the resurrection that you said, Jesus, please set me free because I, I often compare myself. I'm always trying to perfect myself. I mean, California is the worst for that. Almost worse than any other place in the world. No matter how perfect and thin and six-pack and chiseled we are, there's someone more beautiful. Boy, can the resurrection set us free. I would love to be kind of noble, chiseled, bronze like Matt Henderson. I'm not. I actually just, just got to go like, this is me. I'm kind of a rugby thick thighs, thinning hair. This is who, who I am. I don't have his genes. What is it to actually go, God, you made me like this and I want to steward this body. I want to do the best with it. But I can instead of despise. And I want to tell you, beloved, in our culture, I want to walk carefully here, but we have desecrated the body and we've made our feelings about our body sacred. Whatever I feel about my body, that I will listen to. I want to tell you it's deadly. Have you ever walked with someone with anorexia or bulimia? It is horrific because their feelings are so powerful about their body. They can stand and look skin and bone and they say, I'm fat. And you go, no, that's not true. You are making your feelings about your body sacred and it's killing you. But your body is sacred. Yes. Beloved, I know I don't have time, but can I just speak to you tenderly as a pastor? Because it's, it's not just about bulimia and anorexia. And, and, and I've seen people slowly, slowly come out of that, but they actually have to say these feelings are real, but they're not necessarily true. That God has made me a certain way and I'm gonna start to accept that. Stop trying to compare myself to a model. And it's similar when it comes to sexuality. Now I know that gender dysphoria is real, but we have to, we have to realize that our feelings have the potential to be so deceptive. And where we have a culture that says, what your body is, isn't actually sacred. What you feel about your body is sacred. So take what you feel and make permanent changes to your body. Beloved, that is dangerous. I know it's complex, but it's dangerous. Whether it's gender or, or sexuality. Our feelings are so fickle. What I feel about myself changes from day to day, week to week, month to month. Are you gonna do something permanent based on fickle feelings? Instead of just go, this is actually who I am, God, you've made me male. 
I spoke to a guy recently, recently got saved. He said, I wanted to be a woman when I was a teenager. I wanted to be. It was real, but it wasn't necessarily true. I'm walking on shaky ground, but we must speak to this, beloved. Because the Bible says the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we need actually at some point by faith in the resurrection to say, I might not feel comfortable in my skin, but this is who I am, God. And Lord, will you please help me with these feelings that are so confusing and so powerful and so real to me, but not necessarily true. Finally, if Jesus was physically raised in flesh and bone from the dead, we can have him. We can have him. Touch me and see. Touch me. Isn't it amazing that Jesus points to this thinking person's faith? He opens their minds to the scripture. Verse 44, all the law and the prophets and the Psalms are fulfilled in me. But then he acknowledges their experiential faith. Touch me. Then says this beautiful thing. You'll be witnesses, but wait until you've been clothed with power from on high. Isn't that that amazing? That Jesus talks about this cloak that'll come from heaven. You see me in the scriptures, it makes sense, but now you actually need this cloak, this warm cloak of my presence and power from the Holy Spirit if you're gonna be witnesses in this cold world. The faith that Jesus has in mind is a thinking woman's, thinking man's faith, but it's also quite touchy-feely. You receive power. Tim Keller about this says a beautiful thing. He says, why, he asks, why did the Christians lose the tomb after 150 years? They lost it. They lost it to other faiths. If you go to Jerusalem now, some tour guide will say, I'm gonna show you Jesus' tomb for a hundred bucks, but they actually don't know exactly where it is because it changed hands so so often. He says, do you know why? Because they actually had him. (laughs) They had Jesus. In other words, he says, you only enshrine a place if you've lost that person. But if you really have him, if you have his presence and you have his power, no need to enshrine that place. My son's gone off to college. His bedroom, when I am around, when he's around, is a nightmare to me. I go and I say, pick up your shoes, pick up your clothes, come on, tidy it up. When he goes, that mess is sacred to me. (laughs) I go in looking for something to wear. You know, these shoes, they are his shoes. (laughs) Do you think I could afford Michael Kors shoes? No, he can, he worked there. Why? Because I don't have him. Just wait until my daughter goes off. I'm gonna look for something to, I don't know. She wears my t-shirts anyway. But if you have someone, you don't have to enshrine nothing. You have them, you have them. And that's the beauty of Christian faith. We can point to those early disciples and oh, it was so amazing, you stuck your hand into, but actually through the Spirit, we have Him. We have Him like a warm cloak from heaven. 
And the Bible says we have him interceding for us too. Amazing that he keeps his scars in heaven. As Dane Ortland says, he went into heaven with the very body reflecting his full humanity that was raised out of the tomb. He is always and always has been divine as well, of course, but his humanity once taken on will never end. In Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism says, we have our own flesh in heaven. We can have him through the Spirit. We can have him praying for us right now with his scars and therefore sympathetic because he knows and remembers what it is to be flesh and bone. There's no other gospel like that. There's no other God like that. You can have him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you were not resurrected as a ghost. You were resurrected flesh and bone. Embodied world matters. Embodied church and mission matters. And we can have you, Jesus. We can have you. And Lord, we want to base our life on that. Before I call Ryan up to, to land us, I just want to ask, if there are people here who are saying, I, I want to have him. I've kept him kind of from afar, but actually the, I'm so desperate. I want to put my faith in him. I want like these disciples to say, yes, he's mine and I am his. No turning back, no holding him at arm's length. I want to have him. You can have him by faith. You can have him by faith just like they had him. Won't you quickly put up your hand if you say, I want to have him. I need him. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Jesus, come and fill your people with your spirit. As we put our faith in you, come and assure us that you live in us through your spirit. Empower us to be witnesses. Help us to know that our sins are truly forgiven. We thank you. Amen.